This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we've got a special interview for today. It is with Benjamin Laird. So he has his PhD from the University of Aberdeen. He's an associate professor of biblical studies at the John W. Rawlings School of Divinity at Liberty University. And he's authored a bunch of books about New Testament topics like the Pauline Corpus and Early Christianity, 40 Questions About the Apostle Paul, Five Views on the New Testament Canon, and his latest book, which is the scaffolding for today's conversation, Creating the Canon, Composition, controversy in the authority of the New Testament. And so I've been wanting to have a guy on that was a New Testament expert for a while to talk about, okay, how did we get the canon? Like, how do we get the accepted epistles? And why are some epistles not included? Or should they even be called epistles? What about the other writings of Paul? How do we know that all this is legit and all this should be in the canon? Is there stuff missing? And so that's why I had him on. So we talk about how we got into this line of work, where his interest for the New Testament lies, and some of the things that he's going to be working on. But in terms of digging into the New Testament, we talk about how would the New Testament authors have gone about the task of composing their writings? What is this concept of the single original autograph or what some people would say, hey, you don't have the originals. Like, where do we need to kind of change our thinking in terms of what that looks like with ancient texts. Also, who were the original readers and the original audience that the New Testament writings were meant for, and how should that change how we read the New Testament? But then also we deal with the controversy surrounding Marcion, Constantine, the Council of Nicaea. A lot of people that you know read Dan Brown books think, wait a minute, you know the Council of Nicaea happened, and so they just made all this stuff up and got rid of stuff that they didn't like and kept stuff in that they did like, and they changed all the text. And there should seemingly be controversy with that but there's really not. And Benjamin goes into that process, but then also the likely process that led to the formation of the new new Testament canon. And then specifically the, the translations, like how can we go from Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and all, come all the way to modern English and not get anything lost in translation. We dig into that. And then at the end, we talk about, is there a basis for the canons ongoing authority? So you need to stick around and make sure that you listen to that part of it as well. Guys, I really enjoyed my time with the Benjamin. So without further ado, let's get into it. Benjamin Laird, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Appreciate it. Yeah, so we're going to be digging into a new book of yours today, but uh, it seems like most of your career, as I talked about in the intro, has been dedicated to the New Testament. So not just the Bible in general, but specifically the New Testament. So I guess just to be a soft place to land for us here at the beginning, why dedicate you know your entire education seemingly and your career to studying the New Testament? Well, I'd like to think that uh, I'll be able to cover some more things that I have a few more years ahead of me here that uh, I haven't exhausted everything in life. But uh, yeah, up to this point, that has been a focal point. Oftentimes in academics, you get kind of started with one subject Hmm. and uh, you kind of go with that for a while. And uh, kind of like if you're digging in a mine, you just kind of keep digging there as long as there's some kind of minerals you keep you know, extracting from that. So that's kind of been how it's uh, my my career path to this part uh, point. I've just been kind of uh, focused on the history of early Christianity, uh, New Testament canon, that issue, and uh, but I, I definitely have other interests too, which I'm sure I'll I'll get into more fully here in the years to come. Okay, so what are those interests? You can't just throw that out there and not have me ask <laughs> about it. What are the other interests? Well, I do love the study of the Apostle Paul, and uh, so I have done a little bit of work on that. I actually have a New Testament intro. Uh, well, I should say a, a, an intro on Paul that just recently came out. And uh, so I've, I've always just had a, a fascination with his life and his ministry and his, his writing. So Paul has been an interest, uh, anything with early Christian history, right? What was the life of the early church like? What were some of their practices and beliefs and some of the key developments in early Christianity? I've always 
been interested in those historical issues. But um, I love everything, you know, related to scripture. It's just that those have been my kind of key focal points as far as uh, academics is concerned. So before we dig into the new book, which, excuse me, really does get into the canon, it's actually in the title. Where do you think that interest has come from? Because I've been around a lot of Christians in my entire life. I grew up in Oklahoma, so people were at least culturally Christian. But you don't Mm -hmm. always find people that look at the Bible as... This may be overstating the case, but it's almost like they don't really believe it's the word of God because if they did, they wouldn't ignore it so much. They wouldn't have a Bible on their desk that they have to blow the dust off before they read it. But, you know, for some people, it's like, no, they just keep coming back to the book. It's kind of like people that keep coming back to a particular band's music or they keep coming back to a particular style of movie or something like that. There's just something in them that brings them back to it. But I just don't see that 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 thirst or fervor from a lot of Christians, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, there's all these different camps of people, right? There's there's a lot of folks who have, I would say, kind of like this sentimental attachment to scripture. They grew up with it. They heard it read. I think some some people just want to have something of value that's kind of transcendent in their life, right? So, I mean, our culture is constantly changing. What's in one day is going to be out next week. Mm-hmm. And I think there are some people who have this uh, kind of intrinsic kind of connection. They, they, they see there's intrinsic value to scriptures and they, they just have maybe this uh, sentimental attachment to it that keeps drawing them back. And then for others, I think maybe the spirit is not actively at work in their life. And so they kind of view it as ancient history and irrelevant to their life. Um, maybe there's some who deep down, they know that scripture is important, but maybe they don't know why. They haven't actually had anyone walk them through the key doctrines of the faith. They don't see how things are connected. Right. Oftentimes uh, when we're new to the faith, we we know all these stories. Right. And we know about David and Goliath. We know about Jonah and we know about you know Moses and all these things. But we don't really understand the history of how God's redemptive plan unfolded. And uh, for me, you know, when I think about my early Christian years, I think about how it was at that moment that I saw that this is actually one story. That's when I, I think I really developed a love for scripture. It's not just this disjointed collection of ancient you know, legends and myths, but it's, it's actually a story of how God has redeemed sinful humanity. And so I think once I was able to connect the dots and see that, it, it actually uh, gave me a great, uh, not only fondness of scripture, but a great desire to you know, study it in much more depth. But uh, I think there's, I mean, to get back to your original question, I think there's a lot of reasons. I think that uh, reasons for the fact that a lot of people don't, uh, pay the attention, pay attention to scripture like they need to. It could just be from, you know, lack of education when it comes to, and I don't mean formal studies, I just mean exposure to scripture. They don't really know what's in there. They know it's important. It says Holy Bible on the cover, right? At least in a lot of our covers. So they know it's important, but they don't know really why. And I think maybe in our culture, there's, there actually may be a, a good segment of our culture that's actually, that actually has a thirst to know what it's all about to find deeper meaning, right? To actually get to the the heart of scripture, but need someone to help them. And we all need, you know, someone like Philip, right? When we think about the Ethiopian, we need someone like Philip to, you know, point us to what this whole thing is about in the first place. So I think that uh, we have some good opportunities ahead of us for sure. Yeah, I think that's a really good uh, way of putting it because I think there are a lot of people that, yeah, it's just stories from their childhood and they don't really actually believe that Jonah lived in the belly of the whale. Yeah, I mean, it's even weird for me. It's like, ah, yeah, it seems kind of crazy. But it's like I also believe a Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter 
rose from the dead after being dead for three days. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, you know, I kind of have to suspend <laughs> belief uh, at least for a little bit. But one of the the ways that you kind of help people dig into the Bible is your new book that we uh, talked about here in the intro. It's Creating the Canon, Composition, Controversy, and the Authority of the New Testament. So we're going to dig in because at the beginning of each of your chapters, there's like a question right there. And I'm like, hey, I don't like when people give me questions to ask, but Dadgummit, these questions are pretty good. So we're going to use that kind of this, as the scaffolding for our discussion today. But I guess just in a nutshell, the 30,000 foot view on this book, there's quite a few books out there that are kind of, you know, you, I guess your book's not unique in terms of its subject matter. There are a lot of books that cover the the composition of the canon and the authority of the New Testament or the Bible overall. So what is different about this book and I guess your approach to the subject? Well, probably a lot of things I could say that are unique about it. Um, one would be the scope. I tried to start all the way at composition, right? How the writings were actually composed. What do we know about authorship and you know, how someone like Paul would have went about this, the subject of putting this all together. So I start at the very beginning with composition, not, you know, later centuries and just try to focus only on, you know, formation of the canon and try to answer the question, you know, who or how did all this come together? I, I definitely get into that, but I don't start there and don't focus entirely on that. So I start with composition and then I go to collection, how the letters were collected and uh, how the what we know about the formation then. Of the canon, then I get to kind of the uh, the the importance of all this for us today, and I get into the question of authority. You know, what makes the the writings authoritative for us today, or are we just to accept everything in the Bible just because it's in the Bible, or were they put in the Bible because it was recognized that they had authority in the first place? So I kind of wrestle with a good mix of history and theology. I would say historical and theological questions. So that's. That's one. Um, I would say the scope is larger than most. And then what I also try to do is I try to cover these subjects uh, as simply as I can without being simplistic. And so I tried to write in, I would say, a clear way. Uh, we'll let the reader decide how well I did at that. But I tried to write in a very accessible, just straightforward way that everyday people can understand. But I'm not going to kind of hold back on the issues. I'm going to lay it all out there and, and let the reader kind of make his or her own decisions an assessment of this, but I, I wanted to really go into the issues in depth without being, you know, too detailed as far as, you know, the technical language and, and things like that. So I would say style, but also scope or kind of key features of this. Hey guys, real quick. I know that a lot of you in my audience lead very disciplined lives. You crush your workouts, you're getting after it on the mats, you're standing out at work, your family actually likes you, <laughs> you seem to have everything under control. But I've been a part of enough discussions with men over the years to know without a doubt that many of you are dealing with unwanted compulsive behaviors or addictions, whether it's pornography, drinking, smoking, using illegal substances, gambling, lying, whatever. Many of you have allowed yourselves to be mastered by something that is stronger than your willpower. If you don't get that in check, guys, it can have astonishingly negative consequences for your marriage, your relationship with your children, your business your job, your church, on and on and on. I think you get the point. That's why I want to introduce you to my friends at Relay. Relay is a recovery app that matches you with accountability partners that will help you get a handle on your unwanted compulsive behaviors. Relay provides easy-to-use tools that can be tailored to your specific needs and preferences, which will enable you to reach a stage of recovery that you never thought possible. Don't go it alone. 
Don't keep trying the same fail tactics that you've tried in the past. Don't let another day go by without getting your compulsive behavior under control. Let my friends at Relay help. Go to the link in the show notes to try Relay today. That takes you to joinrelay.app backslash undaunted. It's time to start taking this seriously. Again, go to the link in the show notes. Click that link in the show notes to get started. Well, and I know for a lot of guys, you know, I read a lot because that's kind of what I have to do for for this job. But in terms of the actual text of this book, it's just over 200 pages. And there are tomes out there, volumes on this subject matter. And so for a lot of guys, it's like, okay, look at this as a primer. Because I remember when I was talking uh, to uh, Doug O'Donnell over with Crossway and uh, sorry, not allowed to mention other publishers, but it's like, you know, he was talking about this subject matter and I kind of gave him like three or four minutes to answer. And he just kind of <laughs> was like, hey man, what are you doing? Like, you can't just cover this thing like you can do it in a very very high level but uh, if you read a book like this it'll at least introduce you to some of the subject matters that you even brought up just there in your answer and then we'll dig Mm -hmm. in because right now we're going to dig into each part of the book we're going to dig into the chapters and you might be thinking well hey why do i need to buy the book you you just covered it it's like we're covering (laughs) a sliver of each chapter and there's so much more there and there's obviously the 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 notes in the back and all that kind of stuff so part one of the book Benjamin, is questions relating to the production of the New Testament writings. So in the first chapter, you pose again, again, you pose a question at the beginning of each of these chapters. It's how would the New Testament authors have gone about the task of composing their writings? So how did they write this thing? There was one quick quote that I wanted to read from this section, and then I'll have you kind of flow a little bit on what the section says, but here it is. Because illiteracy was rather high in the first century and access to written text was often limited, we can safely assume that it was customary for the New Testament writings to be publicly read to the original recipients and other audiences shortly after their initial composition. Now, what some people will say is like, oh, this is oral tradition and it was written down hundreds of years later. No, that's that's not what you're communicating. But back to the question from this chapter, how would the New Testament authors have gone about the task of composing their writings, which ended up being the New Testament? Yeah, great question. And it really depends on who the author is. Well, it and should what be a great question because it's your so. question. I like how you just gave yourself a compliment. You wrote that question, okay? So you can't compliment me when you're actually complimenting yourself. I'll call you out for yeah. it. Come on. Hey, well, yeah, you called me out on that one. Okay, well, it, it does depend then on the literary genre, right? So a gospel would have been composed a bit differently than, say, an epistle of Paul. So I talk about both of these kind of in separate sections there, but Paul, he would have, I think, worked with a team of people. And that was very common for Paul. When he went to a city, he's not just going there, walking down a dusty road by himself, unless maybe, you know, here and there, maybe like Athens, right? He goes there one time. But in in most cases, he's going to take a team. And when he's there, he's going to work closely with the uh, individuals in that city. He's going to live with people like Gaius and Corinth, you know, places like that. But he's going to uh, work with a secretary. That's going to be important. And when we think of secretary, we kind of think of, you know, someone at the desk in front of the office of the executive and, you know, making his appointments and things like that. That's not what we mean by secretary. We mean really someone who is like a penman or maybe another word we could use is amanuensis or maybe even stenographer or something like that. But in the ancient world, it was very common to have the text dictated to someone. And uh, this is not just the case if you were from the lower classes and couldn't you know, compose the text. If you were wealthy, this is kind of a luxury that you would do. Uh, you might have a slave who is very literate, very educated, and you might dictate a text to them, just like Cicero and Seneca are known to do. Uh, but even everyday people, they would often dictate a text to a professional scribe or someone who had professional training, 
at least, who would volunteer to do this. Uh, because writing and reading were two very separate tasks in the first century. And uh, so you could be very educated like Paul, be very uh, knowledgeable, but still prefer to dictate a text to a scribe. And there were many reasons for that that I get into in the book. But that would have been uh, one of the, the key things we know about how the letters would have been originally composed. We have someone like Paul who is dictating a text to a scribe. And then once that was completed, once the scribe had actually composed the entire letter, it's going to be read by Paul. He's going to look over the finished document and he's actually going to authenticate it. And he would do that just like other authors from the first century by signing a short greeting at the end and then maybe uh, signing his own name. And we actually see allusions to this in his own writings. He'll talk about, you know, his large letters in Galatians at the end of Galatians and uh, the fact that he's writing with his own hand. He'll, he'll mention that, too. So the, the letter carrier would have then taken the letter once it was authenticated, once the scribe had completed his work. Letter carrier is going to take it off to wherever it's going. And that letter carrier would then often, you mentioned reading a few minutes ago, that letter carrier or maybe an elder in a church would have then read the letter publicly to the congregation. So this would have been their first exposure to it. And then that letter carrier would, would uh, return back to Paul or whoever the author was. And what they would often do is give a report. And so we find that people like Paul, they needed to have information about how their letters were being received. We see this especially with the uh, so-called Corinthian correspondence. Paul is constantly sending people to Corinth and then they're coming back to him and they would come back with reports about what they're confused about, how they received his prior instruction, things of that nature. And then he might write a follow-up letter. So there's a whole lot of back and forth going on between Paul and these churches. It was very much a network that he had between a lot of people and a lot of churches. And uh, so there's a lot of people involved. There's the, the scribe or the, the secretary, the letter carrier. He also would have had many people that gave him sources of information as well. Um, so uh, someone like Paul, it's, he's not writing privately. Uh, this is more of a team effort, as I kind of discussed in the book. And that's just the epistles. So, I mean, we could get into the Gospels, too. That's kind of a different thing. But that's generally how an epistle would have been written. It, it would have required a lot of kind of forethought, a lot of planning. These are not just kind of arbitrary, arbitrarily written, uh, just kind of haphazardly put together on the run. Uh, they, they required a lot of thought and a lot of care. And uh, especially Paul, he's very careful in every word. I mean, he would have been a great lawyer. I mean, he's just so careful in every word that every word has a certain purpose and there's a design that we can see. And uh, again, he's going to write probably a lot more letters than we have. Uh, we know that he wrote constantly to these churches as a way to uh, instruct them and encourage them throughout his uh, lifetime. But it's very much a it's very much an ongoing ministry of Paul, at least uh, once we get into um, kind of the heart of his ministry some decade or so after after his conversion. Uh, but it would have involved a lot of people. That's maybe a surprise that a lot of people have about his his ministry there. Yeah, it certainly was a surprise to me as I was reading through the book. But all that kind of cascades into what you talk about in the next chapter, which is this concept of the original autograph. And so you'll hear from a lot of people that, hey, you know, Joe Rogan is a prominent one. Hey, we don't even have the originals. So how can we take any of this seriously? Like, we don't know if it's been doctored. Now it's a foolish take, but I will mm -hmm. say it does make a lot of people feel funny to where it's like, wait a minute, do I actually have the real thing? And specifically, there's a quote that, you know, brought up some consternation from me from your chapter, and it's this. Does the doctrine of inerrancy become more difficult to maintain if it is determined that multiple manuscripts were produced that could legitimately be described as original autograph? 
So I think first we need to do some definitional work. What is an original yeah. autograph? But then I kept writing inerrancy, question mark, inerrancy, question mark in the mm -hmm. margins of the book because I was like, wait a minute. Like if there's 17 different versions of this thing and we say that it's inerrant, but these versions are all different. Like, mm -hmm. the, you know, you could be, is it because they're communicating the exact same thing? That it could be considered inerrant, but yeah, that's just an easy hole for an atheist or an agnostic to kind of poke at, right? So talk to me about original autograph. Yeah, well, by definition, it would just refer to the manuscript that is the final product of the author, what he is going to dispatch originally. And usually when we think about that, we think of, you know, one manuscript. That's kind of the, the whole point that I kind of the, the carrot that I hang out in front of people, right? It's, it's the assumption that a lot of people have is that we just have one manuscript. But what we often don't realize is that these writings would have been very popular from the very beginning and that the author would have had a need for multiple copies. So I actually use the illustration of Romans, and I think your readers will appreciate this illustration. It helps me when I think about it this way. When Paul writes to the church in Rome, he's writing from the city of Corinth. And when he completes this manuscript, right, he's dictating this to a scribe. One of the things that scribes would often do is make duplicate copies for their author. I mean, you wouldn't want to be Paul and you get done with this manuscript and you send the one copy you have off to the city of Rome and just hope you'll, you know, you'll see it again someday. You're going to want a copy of that uh, for your own future reference, right? So th this was just a very common thing. It's not just something we kind of speculate occurred with biblical authors. We know ancients did this as well. So they would have a duplicate that would be produced for them, maybe even multiple duplicates, but at least one. And they're going to hold on to that throughout their career. Uh, so Paul would have wanted a copy. He's obviously going to send one off to the Romans. And then I think that the Corinthians would have wanted a copy too. So it actually comes as a surprise to a lot of people that the first people to actually hear, not read, but likely hear Romans would have actually been the Corinthians, not the Romans, because uh, that's where Paul was when he writes this. And so you have Paul, he's staying in the home of a Corinthian family. He's uh, got a letter carrier who's from there. I mean, all these uh, different people from Corinth are playing a role in the in the production of Romans in one way or another. So I think there's a good chance that the Corinthians would have wanted at least one copy, maybe even multiple copies of this. So at the end of the compositional process, we have likely duplicates, many duplicates being produced and all going kind of different directions. And then not only that, but we also have these letters read in churches. So these, uh, we talked about how Paul had a network of churches, churches he founded, churches he ministered in, that type of thing. And so they would have all wanted copies too. And they would have all wanted to hear the text read because most people heard the text, not uh, read the text. And so from the very beginning, we have uh, a kind of explosion of apostolic writings that begin to circulate and be read in the churches. And so that actually is helpful for me to understand that, not just so I understand the process of composition. I think it's helpful for that reason alone. But when we think about this too, it, when our concern about there not being a single manuscript tends to come from the fact that uh, we, we kind of have this assumption that that one manuscript is kind of like this artifact. And it's just kind of on its own somewhere. Maybe it's uh, you know hidden in a church or a home or buried somewhere for decades and decades and decades. And it's just, you know, nobody's really paying attention to it. And it just kind of gets lost to history. But in fact, what we have is a text that is circulating and a and manuscripts that are being produced very, very quickly. And uh, so the fact that we get to, say, the second, third, fourth century, and we start to see a lot of copies 
that have been preserved for us. And they're actually very, very similar. That's, uh, that's reassuring to me. It shows that, you know, with all the duplicates that were made and all the reading in churches, we actually have a very consistent text. There's some differences, of course, between the manuscripts we have, but they tend to be over very minor issues, things like spelling or, you know, some of the major differences between manuscripts actually have to do with things that are not theological at all. You know, things like whether or not you include an article, you know, like the the Greek article or not, you know, things that are that make actually no uh, bearing on the text or the meaning of the text at all. But uh, it is interesting that not only do we have multiple texts being read uh, or being copied right away, but they're being read in multiple places. And uh, there's actually great consistency in all the witnesses we find, whether it be uh, texts that come from the West or the East or, you know, second, third, fourth century. They're, they're all very consistent with each other, showing that they all go back to uh, the author uh, back in the first century. And so that's interesting because I remember Vody Bauckham here recently talking about these people that say, oh, you know, these these New Testament writings were doctored so that, mm-hmm. you know, the the apostles could gain prestige and money and women and all that type of stuff. And it's like, do you understand how silly that is to say because of what would need to happen? Yeah. Because they would literally need to get all the different transcripts in all the different languages and all the different parts of the globe, change them all and then put them back in no, nobody notice. It's like it's not it sounds good if you're doing univariate analysis, but if you're doing like multiple stages of analysis, it's like, okay, this isn't even plausible, much less likely. And so yeah. then we get into the next chapter where you're talking about the original readers. The, act, the exact question is who exactly were the original readers or the original audience of the New Testament writings? Now, that is just a good question for all of us to ask ourselves when we're reading the New Testament, right? Mm-hmm. Who is this for? Because so many people read the Bible without regard for context or audience. Like, wait a minute, is this something that I'm being told to do in modernity? Or was this something that a particular group of people was being told to do at a particular time in history? And that becomes a problem when people read every part of the Bible, literally, because I will have young earth people scream at me and send me these long emails and say, Kyle, if you don't read the Genesis accounts of creation, literally, then you don't believe the Bible. You don't believe in God. You don't believe in any of these things. And it's like, wait a minute. Do you think that Jesus is a vine? Because it literally says that in John 15. Do you think Jesus is a door that we need to Mm -hmm. knock on? It's like, where Mm -hmm. do we take this literalism? Like where exactly does that end? So I'm not trying to pull the, you know, the scab off of the young earth debate right now, but talk to me a little bit about these original audiences and does that extrapolate itself out to our consideration today directly? Yeah, Kyle, that was just great. Uh, Hermeneutics 101 there, a lot of the issues you raised. So that was that was very helpful. But I tell students, you know, when you read an epistle, when you read a gospel, always try to pin down what prompted the author to write this in the first place, right? If Paul's going to write the Philippians, you know, what actually led him to write? What was he concerned about? And if I'm going to study the, Philippi, uh, the, the epistle of the Philippians, I want to get to the end and say, you know, well, what, how does this apply to me? That's not the first question I would come up with. I would want to know what led Paul to actually write. What did he try to address in this? What was a concern to him in his situation? And uh, when we start to read it that way, I think it actually is much more beneficial and we're going to uh, avoid a lot of the uh, misinterpretations and and we're going to focus on what really matters in the text and the author rather than just what matters supposedly to us, right? So Hmm. I think that's a very, very important point. Uh, But when it comes to the original audience, you know, we just simply read, oftentimes what we'll do is we'll just look at the title and it'll say to the Romans, well, case closed. 
you know, Paul is writing to the Romans or he's writing to the Corinthians or he's writing to the Galatians, you know, that type of thing. And I'm not disputing the titles. I think they're actually accurate, but I'm suggesting that that's not the entire picture. There's actually more to it than just that. And so if Paul, like we said a few minutes ago, if he's writing from, say, Corinth and he's writing to the church in Rome and he knows that many of the first readers of this are actually going to be those in his community, you know, it wouldn't be uh, I wouldn't doubt the fact that Paul would want to address a few things that might actually apply to the Corinthians, not just those in Rome. So I think it's helpful to note that we have multiple kind of layers to this. We have uh, different tiers almost. We could use that term, but we have, uh, I would say, maybe an immediate audience, you know, the primary audience. And for you know Romans, we could say, well, he's writing primarily to the Romans, but he's also writing for the benefit of other early Christian writers, whether they be in Corinth or other nearby cities as well. And then you could make a case that he's writing for an even broader audience because he knew that this writing would ultimately be, or at least he intended for this letter to be circulated amongst uh, a large body of uh, churches and Christians, even of later generations. So I think we can read it with the sense that uh, Paul has multiple audiences in view, you know, maybe a primary audience, but then even a secondary audience. Gets a little thorny when you get into the second audience, uh, secondary audience, because it's it's not always apparent who that is. You know, sometimes it's it's uh, a little more clear than other times, uh, and so it, we have to be careful not to speculate too much about the you know the specific groups that Paul is speaking to. But I do think that he was writing to wide audiences in all of them, all of these letters. I don't think that uh, we actually have any private letters in the New Testament at all. Even uh, something like Philemon or First and Second Timothy or Titus, they're actually written for broad audiences and communities. And uh, so it's, it's helpful to know, you know who that community is, try to identify who that community is or was. And then also, as I said, what prompted Paul to write them in the first place? Something had to be a concern to him for him to write this. And so until we identify what that is, we're going to have all kind of trouble when it's all kinds of trouble when it comes to interpretation then. I also think something that came to mind, I did a debate with a guy uh, in the UK a couple of years back. He is a Christian anti-gun activist. So literally he goes around the country getting people to destroy their firearms for whatever mm-hmm. reason. But he uses Isaiah 2, 4 as his justification. They beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And the problem is, is if you put that on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker, it's like, oh, I need to to make my gun. I need to cut my gun in half. I need to turn it into a pot that I'm going to use for a ficus or something like that. But it's like the, with the context of that text, it's like, no, 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 God's going to do that. You're not choosing to do that as, you know, uh, a worship, a worshipful thing for God. So again, when you take out of consideration, who is this message for? That's Mm -hmm. why I have so many problems. Every time I see a scripture that's posted on Instagram or on somebody's t-shirt, I'm like, I need to go back and read maybe that entire section Mm -hmm. because I don't think that's giving me the message that I think it does. It looks cool, you know, before a football game, but maybe not for how we should live our lives. Did you want to hop back in on that? Yeah, you're, you're right on. So we have to not only determine, you know, what the issue is that the author wanted to address, but when he's providing instruction, what type of literary genre is this? Is it prophecy? Mm -hmm. Is it uh, instruction to a contemporary audience? We have to be able to sort all that out and, a lot of the prophetic material, you know, we could say, well, we need to follow through with that today. But maybe it's more of like in the illustration you gave, maybe it's more of a, of a picture of what will come in the age to come. Right. Uh, the, the, the kind of uh, world that God will create when he comes back, you know, at post second coming. So maybe that has to do with it. 
I remember uh, as well, you mentioned uh, the fact that maybe you just need to read in more of the immediate context. And I remember a seminary professor told me in class one time, actually told the rest of the class, uh, but mentioned that we should never read a verse. And I, that's always stuck with me. You know, we mm. can read a verse and you might think, what do you mean? You should never read a verse. But the point is you should read a verse in its larger context, because if you just focus on one little sentence, you can, I mean, it's, it's entirely disconnected from context then, and you can make it mean basically anything you want it to mean. Uh, just like we, we find in our digital age, you know, we can, uh, we can focus on maybe a soundbite of a, what a politician said, and then we can make it mean anything we want it to mean. Uh, but we have to look at the larger context of the conversation and the address of the person to know really what was meant then. So, yeah, I appreciate that, uh, the importance of uh, looking into those uh, background matters. That's helpful. Yeah, it certainly is very, very important. But now we're going to get controversial. Okay, because now we're going to get into part two of your book. And part two is questions relating to the formation of the New Testament canon. So we talked about basically, you know, how they were produced. Now we're talking about their formation. And this is where people that think they're smart will always bring up Martian or Constantine or the Council of Nicaea. And the question in the first chapter of this part uh, poses is, did theological controversies play a decisive role in the formation of the New Testament canon? Because I read the Da Vinci Code, and you know how I read it? I read it like it was a non. I read it like it was a fiction book. That's how mm-hmm. I read it because it's a fiction book. Now, are there things and places in that book that were real and I do exist and actually happened? Yes, but the entire narrative of that story and the movie and the subsequent movies is not historical. It's not a documentary. Yeah. It's an entertainment thing. But then people mm-hmm. walked away having never heard of Emperor Constantine, never heard of the Council of Nicaea, never heard of these different things. And now it's like, oh, hundreds of years later that the dominant force in Rome decided, "Uh, I like that. Yeah, give me a couple of more epistles like that. Mm, These aren't cool, so we're going to keep those out of the canon. So let's set the record straight, Benjamin. Did theological controversies play not a decisive role, but the decisive role in formulating what is in the New Testament canon? And I would say absolutely not to that. Uh, so you don't have to go very far in my chapter to, to kind of get that from me. But uh, yeah, I would say absolutely not. You know, there's two kind of viewpoints on this. And by the way, you said this was the, the kind of controversial section. In my mind, writing this at least, I thought of this as the least controversial. It's because it's easy. So. Like if you know the history <laughs> and if you know what actually happened, yeah. it's it, it seems like it should be controversial. But it's like, no, this just flat out didn't happen. When you look at the witnesses, yeah. So a lot of times we just don't actually examine the earliest witnesses we have to the canon. And then we just have all these assumptions that we kind of use to formulate our viewpoint uh, on how the canon came together. But you know, there are kind of two trains of thought, and it's not even a scholarly versus layman kind of thing. Um, but there is a common viewpoint that there has to be something external that threatened the church. And when I say church, I mean, you know, the power brokers of the church. And, uh, you know, the, the, the most influential bishops and those who wield the most authority. So the common idea is that there was some kind of heresy that was going around that led these kind of power brokers to uh, pick certain writings and then canonize them. And then what that did was it had an immediate effect of basically, um, you know, ridding any kind of uh, alternative teaching. So if you're, you know, holding a viewpoint on Christ that was different than Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, all of a sudden you're in trouble because, you're actually, uh, you know, espousing a viewpoint that's actually inconsistent with this new canon now. So they came to the realization, this is the argument, they came to the realization that we'll never have any kind of agreement on theology, 
these controversial theological issues if we don't have, first of all, a canon of scripture. And so they dispute and they, they have all these uh, theological arguments. And then the victors have the responsibility then, or maybe you could say they're, they're given the reward and the opportunity to kind of form the Christian canon. So it's, it's really like, uh, you know, to the victors go the spoils kind of uh, way of thinking. So the idea is that you have all these theological debates. They can't figure out, you know, who's right and who's wrong because Christians, Christianity was just so uh, diverse in the early churches the way a lot of people understand it. And uh, finally, it wasn't uh, that they all got together and somebody just won a theological argument necessarily. It's that you have people with great power and they're, they're, they were able to kind of overcome and um, defeat uh, all of their rivals. And then they're able to create a canon that uh, is typically thought to have taken place, at least uh, you know if you read the Da Vinci Code or something like that, or follow popular thought, this is often thought to have occurred in the fourth or fifth century. So that means, you know, for the first 300 years, Christianity is incredibly diverse. And it's not until three, 400 years later that you have certain doctrines that are really that really become universally accepted or close to universally accepted, at least in, in a decisive, you know, 27 volume New Testament canon. And up until then, it, the idea is that Christians are just reading everything and anything. And uh, one community would have one text another community would have another set of texts they're reading. And there's just no consistency. So that's that's kind of a common idea, but that uh, the idea of a fourth or fifth century council determining the can that's more of a lay level lay person kind of idea that uh, you might hear in movies or or see in movies or you know um, maybe some kind of you know TV show on you know History Channel or something like that. Uh, then scholars have uh, a very similar viewpoint. A lot of scholars think that in the second century, maybe someone like Marcion played a key role and. Uh, that name may not be familiar to everyone, but Marcin was a second century heretic. He was basically a wealthy businessman. It's it's not that different today. You know, somebody can make billions of dollars and they can run for office, right? And uh, have a little more traction than, you know, someone like me who doesn't have that amount of money. Uh, you know, I, I don't have that to fuel my own campaign, but, you know, somebody who's very wealthy does. And Marcin, uh, he actually was very wealthy because of the shipping industry. He didn't live that far from modern day Istanbul. And uh, he was able then to kind of, uh, you know, get his thoughts out there. But he came to the conclusion that the God of the Old Testament was this God of evil. This He was a wrathful God and God of wrath. And this God that uh, you wanted to stay completely away from because he's going to judge you and condemn you. He's not a God of love, right? Or compassion or anything like that. So Jesus then kind of intercedes and uh, stands between us and this evil, you know, uh, sinful God. You could even say sinful God, I guess, in the Old Testament period. So here, uh, this was a person that was very much maligned. He was very much uh, uh, criticized by the majority of the church. But he actually is known for adopting a gospel that looked very similar to Luke. Scholars debate whether or not he just took a gospel of Luke and kind of tweaked it, or if he you know, had some similar sources of Luke or something. But uh, it seems that he had a single gospel. And then also he had a smaller collection of Paul's letters. And so the idea is that when he starts to circulate these 11 writings in his communities, because he had his own uh, communities that uh, followed him, kind of like the David David Koresh, I think it was, right, when I was a kid mm. of the second century. So he had all these communities that are reading these 11 works. And then the uh, more influential bishops are observing this and they say, wait a minute, we can't have Marcion decide what people are reading. So that prompted them to create a larger canon. So those are two common viewpoints that people have is that it was something external, some kind of threat or controversy that led the church to say, okay, we're going to go with these writings 
And these are the writings we're now going to accept and we're going to treat as authoritative scripture. And everything else is now going to be removed. You're not to read those anymore. And I would say that's that's not how the canon actually formed. Um, so I guess your original question was, it was a yes or no question. So I answered why I don't think that's the case. But um, but yeah, I don't think it was either of those. I, I think there's actually a more natural explanation for it. Well, Benjamin, if you answer my questions, yes or no, that's going to lead to a terrible interview. So I appreciate you elucidating <laughs> your point further. It'd be very before, short. Yeah, but, but before we move off of that, um, this is kind of devil's advocate thing coming out because mm -hmm. even earlier in this conversation, you mentioned, hey, Paul had many other letters that are not mm -hmm. inside the New Testament canon. And so, yeah. again, knowing that men are fallible, but also knowing that God is sovereign and holding those two things in tension, is it possible? Well, well possible is hard because te technically anything's possible. Is it likely that there's a book missing from the older New Testament canon, is there a, a letter from Paul that should have been included in our accepted canon, but that, that hasn't been? Is there another gospel? Because a lot's been made of the gospel of Peter and the gospel of mm -hmm. you know 17 other people. Is it possible that there's something else that wouldn't take away from the, the overall story of the biblical canon, but that just didn't make it into our accepted canon in later on in life, you know, when we're before God, he's gonna be like, you idiots. Like I gave you all of these and you, you didn't do what I told you to do. Why isn't it? Why yeah. isn't this in there? So help me. Cause I know even God's sovereignty, people are like, Kyle, you're going to hell just for even asking that. But it, it <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah. So, you know, one day we'll, we'll have all of our eschatological answers and uh, you know, maybe we'll be told, well, it's right there in, you know, third Thessalonians or something. Right. So, yeah. well, to, to, there's an important point here. There's a difference between the recognition of certain books and then the composition of certain books. So th they're two kind of different things. And I actually think that uh, the authors actually had a role in what was preserved. So it's not as though we have Paul just write, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of things. And what we have now is just what we were able to kind of put together and, and find after, you know, hunting these down over many decades. So you know, Paul would have had a collection. I think Paul's a good example of this. But to go back to what we said about duplicates, Paul would have had a multiple, I mean, multiple letters in this collection that he's going to maintain over the years. And I think it's possible that maybe he stored these in the homes of certain Christians. And I mean, he had a large network of people he worked with, but he's going to have a have a large collection of writings. And uh, I think at the near the end of, the, of his lifetime, around the time he died, I think what happened was they begin to go through all the material and Paul is going to determine maybe alongside of someone like Timothy and Luke, they're going to make a decision as to what they should put in this collection that's going to start to circulate. Uh, now, Paul was, I think, very practical like we are. Uh, sometimes, you know, if I write a recommendation for a student, right, I do this all the time. I'll have a kind of a kind of like a uh, boilerplate kind of, you know, template that I'll use. And what I can do is, uh, you know, kind of tweak this a little bit. So, I have two students, they both want the exact same position, but different schools. It's, you know, I can tweak the letter a little bit, personalize it a little bit, but I'm not going to write the whole thing from scratch. And I think mm. there would have been times where Paul actually had a letter that he wrote to one church. He's going to hear that another church down the road is dealing with the exact same issue. He could actually kind of take that original letter and personalize it, tweak it, supplement it. Maybe there's something that they need to hear that the first church didn't. He might add a paragraph and discuss that. Maybe there's another comment that he can remove, but he might, you know, actually send out a second letter that looked a whole lot like another one. In fact, 
Ephesians and Colossians is kind of a good comparison. We actually see quite a few similarities between the two writings there. So I think that actually is is a good illustration uh, for that. So I think Paul would have had a lot of copies that would have actually uh, overlapped with each other as far as the content, had similar uh, instruction and, and things like that. So I think when they're looking at uh, you know forming this collection originally uh, from these duplicate copies, I think what they did was they they decided on these works that had uh, unique content and that was universal for the church. Those, those were the two kind of primary things. So if they looked over a writing and maybe Paul wrote, you know, another letter to the Philippians and they look at this and say, you know what, uh, this letter actually just, it was just business uh, kind of information. You told them, okay, you're going to come on this date. And uh, you, you mentioned some items that you want to have kind of ready for you. And, you know, there's not really anything practical to that. We don't need to add that in this collection. Or maybe it's uh, the fact that, uh, you know, one letter looks a whole lot like another letter. So we don't need to duplicate, have both of them. We can just go with this one here because it really has everything that's in this other one. So I think that's uh, that's probably what happened. I, I think there's a chance that, I mean, we don't know. There's, there's no way to, to know for sure. But, you know, we have 13 letters that are ascribed to Paul in the New Testament. I, I think there's probably dozens and dozens and dozens of writings that he did compose. And so we actually have kind of a small collection of his works that have survived. But again, I wouldn't say that uh, this is all just by chance, that what we have are just the ones that just seem to somehow make it through history, but it's actually very intentional. The design of this is actually very intentional and uh, the selection of writings is very intentional. So that tells me that uh, that's why I'm not too concerned about the question of whether or not, you know, what if we find another one? Uh, because again, we, we're not just looking at the survivors in our New Testament. We're looking at something Paul and his colleagues would have actually determined. This, there's a lot of thought that went around uh, the precise uh, letters that should be included then. Okay, excellent. Well, I appreciate your thoughts on that. Let's go ahead and get into the next section, which the, the question you pose is, what was the likely process that led to the formation of the New Testament canon? I want to read a short quote from this section. In most cases, Greek manuscripts contained either the four Gospels, Acts, the Pauline Epistles, the Catholic Epistles, or Revelation, rather than 27 individual writings circulating independently until a decisive event prompted the creation of the canon. The earliest textual witnesses reveal that the vast majority of the writings first circulated as part of a particular canonical subcollection. So I got to be honest, in my head, Benjamin, I never really thought through this very much. In my head, you know, here's a letter from Paul. Some, you know, runner would take it to whatever city and it would be read there and maybe it would get tattered along the way. So this group ends up with, you know, a third of a, of a you know, piece of this transcript and this group ends up with a little bit of her. And because that's how we get these little pieces of the New Testament, all these different transcripts. But it never really occurred to me that they would get a collection of them, like a town or a city or an ecclesia would get a collection of them. Mm -hmm. And then... When did that all come together as like, okay, here's the New Testament. Like when did people first start getting the 27 individual writings, letters and gospels and, and everything else? When did they get that in a, kind of one volume? So take me through that process because to, Frank, to be frank, I just never thought about it. Yeah, it's something a lot of people haven't thought too much about. And it comes as a big surprise to people just how the scriptures were passed down over the centuries. Because we have in our mind what a Bible is. We think of one book, right? Um, we all have a lot of these on our shelves. At least a lot of us do, or they're on our phones or whatever. But we think of a single book 
of 66 individual writings. It's almost like one book with 66 chapters. And we just, so we just think of it as this one kind of object. Uh, but what comes as a surprise to a lot of people is that Christians throughout most of church history, uh, when they encountered scripture, it was in a in the context of a manuscript that had a smaller collection, not the whole. Um, so this is this is an interesting thing when it uh, when we think about the handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament, and this would have actually been how manuscripts came down to us for the first fifteen hundred years or so, right, give or take a, a century. But you have Gutenberg, you know, the end of the fourteen hundreds, and uh, you still have some handwritten manuscripts after that. But it's really not until the fifteen hundreds, the sixteenth century that the printing press really is used to, you know, to produce Bibles in, in these large scales, uh, large quantities then. Uh, but it's not until the printing press that you actually can just conveniently copy scripture as, as a whole, you know, Bible. So up until the printing press, it was hand, they were handwritten. And that meant that in most cases, it's going to be a small collection. So you might go to church and there's a, you know, their Bible was, was a, a codex. Codex would just be uh, the form of writings up until that point. Uh, the common form where you have sheets of papyri or parchment, you stack them on top of each other, then you bind the edges to form what's essentially a book. Uh, but most of the time you'll have a codex that just has one collection. It might have the four gospels. You'll ha it'll have the Pauline epistles. It might have Acts. It might have Revelation. It might have the so-called Catholic epistles. But it's going to be usually one of those collections. So it's only on very rare occasions that you have an entire New Testament with all 27. So that's just so important because it shows the development of the canon. The canon didn't just kind of, you know, come out of nowhere. And one day everybody has a 27 volume New Testament. But uh, the way we think of it is actually fairly recent. You know, the way that most people encounter it. It's really the last 500 years that people have a complete New Testament. But yeah, you start with those smaller building blocks. So the New Testament canon, the best way to think of it is it's a collection of collections. That's how I always describe it. So it's smaller collections, and if we could count, you know, Acts and Revelation as collections, but they 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 focus they they uh, transmit on their own, right? Uh, there are times that Acts did circulate with, say, the Catholic epistles, but it's more of an independent work, just like Revelation. But originally, what you have are smaller codices that don't in include the entire New Testament or even the entire Bible, much less the entire Bible. And so those were the four kind of or five common, depending on how you count it five common, what you might call sub-collections. And then over time, you do have some codices that begin to combine these collections. And so it was a very natural process. You might have one manuscript that has the four gospels and Acts. Another might have, for example, Acts and the Pauline epistles and the Catholic epistles together. Another one might have every collection except it doesn't have Revelation at the end. So it's, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, getting Mexican food or something like that, where you have you know five or six basic ingredients and uh, you might have your tortilla and your cheese and your beans and all these and your meat, your beef, and you can kind of make all these different things of it. And a lot of times, you know, that's how their Bibles looked. It was certain ingredients, so to speak. You might have one or you might have two or might have three of those collections. Uh, so there was a natural, there's kind of a loose connection between them because they all circulated, uh, you know, in different combinations. But they're, you know, to understand the history of the canon, you really have to understand the history of those individual collections. Because that's really what the formation of the canon is about, the smaller collections coming together to form one larger collection. Okay, well, now I'm hungry, so I'm fasting right now, and now <laughs> I can think about some Mexican food. Thank, thanks a lot. <laughs> well, <clears throat> you didn't really cover this in your book, but <clears throat> excuse me. another thing that is a common critique or common controversy that's brought up with the New Testament is, look, you don't speak Greek. 
You don't speak ancient Galilean Aramaic. You don't speak Hebrew. You can't read it. You're reading it in English. And look, it was translated, you know, into this language. Then it was translated into German. And then it was translated into Old English. And now here we have it. And we've got the ESV, the NASB, the NIV, the New Living Translation, the message, whatever the hell that thing is. And we've got all these different versions of it. And it's like, look, you can't rely on this because you can't even read the originals. So has that been a, a part of your study? Because I got to say, when I'm reading it in English, I always wonder, what if I were a first century Jew reading this in Hebrew? Would it feel different? Would it seem different? Because when you hear descriptions of the Greek language, it's like, look, it takes English a paragraph to, to understand the same thing someone would understand in a few words in the Greek. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it would, I would be kind of overstating things if I said that, you know, English is, you know, our English translations are impeccable. They're, you know, perfect in every way. If you could have a perfect English translation, you would only have one English translation. You wouldn't need to have multiple ones. So they're all our best attempts to capture the original, you know, sense of the of the Greek there. So, you know, a good translation is going to be readable, but it's also going to be as accurate as possible. Those are the two kind of things you shoot for. And uh, sometimes you'll have a translation that kind of it kind of shifts one direction at the expense of the other. But that's really the goal of translation is to be readable and accurate together and not you know sacrifice one for the sake of the other. But there are certain things that are just whether we like to you know admit or not, there's certain things that are just lost when you go from one one language to the next. And so, for example, if you're in the uh, the Greek New Testament, you'll often see certain literary devices that are basically impossible to carry over. You'll see things like alliteration, you know, where the same Greek letter is is uh, at the beginning of multiple words in a row. And you might think, well, um, it might not even carry over at all into English. I mean, there's no way to alliterate that in English when you go to a different language there or just different uh, ways certain parts of speeches are used or um, certain you know idioms that are used. Certain expressions will often have uh, times where you might have an adjective, for example, in Greek that doesn't really carry over into English. Uh, just yesterday, I was walking my students through you know, James, uh, James chapter one, and we were looking at the passage where it says that God is, I mean, we might want to put it uh, in our English translation as something like un, untemptable, but that doesn't really you know, work in English. So we would say something like he is not tempted and we have to kind of use different parts of speech to communicate the same uh, basic idea. So uh, but that's that's kind of a plug for you know folks to take actually Greek courses if you can, you know, try to learn as much as you can from the original language and it's going to be of great benefit. You know, if our English translations were perfect, we wouldn't need to study the original languages, would we? But um, there is definitely great gain. So I would say, you know, the English were blessed with a multitude of uh, translations and they're valuable and you can understand any, I'm not suggesting that if you go to the English text, you're going to be thoroughly confused and you're not going to be able to understand the gospel. Uh, you certainly can. And we're blessed with very good translations, but no translation is perfect. And no translation is entirely free from interpretation either. Uh, so I should say translation is a science and an art. It's both of them. So, so Benjamin, I got some breaking news for you. Most <laughs> people in America suck at English. And so here you are advocating yeah. <laughs> that they try and study Greek. I, I think we might have some problems there. Yeah, is there might. a English translation that you prefer, one that you think is you know, very readable, but also very you know, tied to the original? 
Yeah, I think there's several, you know, the New American Standard, the ESV. I think the NIV is good oftentimes. Uh, New King James is good, but it has a slightly, there's some textual issues there, that, which is another conversation. But uh, yeah, I think I think there's a, there's, you know, half a dozen or so that I would recommend that I think are all excellent. None of them are perfect, however. And I actually think it's good to read different translations. Uh, so I've kind of got out of the practice of just sticking to one. When I was a kid, I basically read the New King James all the time. Uh, that's what was in our church, the New King James and then also the NIV. Because when I went to church on Sunday, they preached out of the NIV. But then we had Awana clubs on Wednesday night where we memorized verses. And that was always out of the New King James. So I got kind of used to those two. And for years, I just kind of stuck to those two. But then uh, I found it actually helpful to, you know, every time you read through, say, the New Testament or something, read a different version. Don't just read the same one all the time. Some might dispute that and think that's not a good idea. But I found it's actually refreshing because we'll see new details in the text that kind of prompt, you know, fresh investigation. But I might read the NASB one time. The next time I'm going to read the ESV or the CSB or something. I, I just actually rotate quite a bit then. Okay. Yeah. I say for me, I pretty much exclusively read the ESV, mm-hmm. but the pastor of our church exclusively preaches out of the NASB. Every mm-hmm. now and then he will, you know, he'll mention something in another translation, but that's basically what he sticks to. So I, I kind of get to compare them on Sunday morning. But as we yeah. wind to a close here, Benjamin, I want to talk about part three of the book. And part three is questions relating to the authority of the New Testament canon. And so the last major question that you pose in your book is, is there a basis for the canon's ongoing authority? Because more breaking news, we live in an era of postmodernism where what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. There's no objective standard to anything. Hey, what could these people two and 3,000 years ago writing down on like parchment paper or whatever? Mm-hmm. Like, what could these people possibly have on us? It's this chronological snobbery that C.S. Lewis talks about that everyone born before I was born was obviously a rube and a moron. But yeah. that does kind of lend itself to this debate about, okay, why are we relying on this text that was compiled thousands of years ago? How does it apply to me? Obviously, because the gospel, it has to apply to each and every one of us. But what is specifically the tangible basis for the ongoing authority of this canon? Yeah, very good. Well, the original question that you read, which was the one in the book, I think, it's a yes or no answer. So I would just say yes, uh, yeah. but I think you want a little more than that. And Let's go some I more. Let's say, go some more. I would say that uh, it's actually a Christological issue, right? So if I were to say, you know, do you believe Christ had authority? And I mean, everybody in church would say yes. Well, what we have here with the canon, it's interesting. We actually have a link to Christ. That's why the the writings of the New Testament are authoritative, ultimately because they are connected to Jesus himself. You might say, well, what in the world? Jesus didn't even actually, you know, create anything. He didn't write anything. He didn't write any of these books. So what's going on with the connection here? Well, if you think about it Christologically, uh, it actually makes a lot of sense. There's a early Christian writing I could point to. It's called First Clement. And uh, this was written, we think, around the end of the first century, maybe the mid-90s of the first century or so. And it's interesting what the author, what Clement of Rome states there. I think it's in uh, chapter section 42, something like that. But he says, you know, God sent Jesus, and then Jesus sent out the apostles. And so there's there's this link that goes between God and Jesus and then the apostles. In fact, uh, Hebrews 3 actually refers to Jesus as our great high priest. He's our high priest, and the second thing he mentions there is our apostle. So you might think, well, what is an apostle? Apostle is one who is sent or commissioned with an authoritative message, right? So Jesus was actually sent from God. 
he had authority because of his nature, but also he came with an authoritative message. He he came from God. And that's why he often you know says, I am I've been sent for this reason or that reason. So we have Jesus, who is our great apostle, sent from God the Father. And then Jesus sends out the twelve and he commissions them. He actually appoints them to serve as his representatives. And then short time later, after the resurrection, the apostle Paul is included in that as well. And so we have this team of 12 and Paul sent out by Jesus. And so their instruction then is actually authoritative, whether it be in written form or if they were teaching in a synagogue or in a local church, whatever they taught uh, was actually considered authoritative because they represented Jesus. So, so to reject the apostles' instruction then was to ultimately reject Jesus, which would be to reject God. So there's a, this chain there. And uh, then the apostles and Paul, they're going to minister in all these different churches. They're going to compose writings. Paul, as we said a few minutes ago, actually kind of at the beginning of the of our of our session, uh, Paul worked with a great team, a large team, people like Timothy and Titus and uh, Luke and Mark, all these individuals, many of whom we know quite well today. Uh, but he's going to work with them, and they're also going to take part in his apostolic uh, ministry then. So that's why we actually have several works in the New Testament that are not written by one of the Twelve or Paul. They're actually written by those who are close colleagues of Paul or members of the Twelve then. But Ultimately, the reason why the writings of the New Testament are what I would say authoritative is because of their connection to the apostles. They were all written either by those that Jesus sent out directly, so he personally commissioned them, or those who worked directly with the apostles in their ministry. And so we have this apostolic community that is responsible for, I would say, all 27 books that we have in our New Testament. And then this apostolic community goes back to Jesus. Jesus goes back to God the Father. So that's why we have a link. Uh, so authority is actually connected to what we'd call apostolicity. It's connected to uh, these individuals. That's why authorship is actually an important issue and why the early church argued about, you know, whether or not certain books were from apostles or not. It was always uh, that was always the major debate, the major hang up. Uh, so a, a book like Hebrews, they did not fully accept it until it became more widely accepted that Paul was the author or, you know, maybe second Peter. Once they were convinced that Peter was the author of this, then it, it, they recognized it as being authoritative scripture because all these apostolic writings, they go to Jesus who goes to God. So it's all very much connected then. So if you take a, say, example, for example, if you take a second century work that was forged in the name of an apostle and the early church determined, you know, this was not actually written by Peter or this was not actually written by Paul, then the chain is broken then. And that's actually, you know, something emphasized by early Christians like Tertullian. When he argues against, he has this five volume, this massive five book work called Against Marcion. And one of the things he emphasizes there, especially in the last two books, is that if you accept books that don't actually go back to the apostles, you're, you're breaking that chain that goes to Christ, that link that goes to Christ then. So to kind of summarize, I would say my understanding of authority, it's, it's a Christological understanding. I think that uh, we, we can recognize the authority of the books we have today because they ultimately go back to Jesus indirectly, but they go back to him through his apostles then. I think that's great. We have covered a lot of ground, but we didn't even really scratch the surface on creating the canon. There's so much in this book. Again, guys, it's creating the canon. It is in the show notes, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Just appreciate the opportunity to be here and uh, hope the book serves as a great blessing to you and uh, your readers, or I should say your listeners then. All right. Benjamin Laird, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you. 
There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Benjamin Laird. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a link to the book, Creating the Canon. You can go and check it out for yourself. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>